0: would just join me in prayer father we thank you for the words that you share and how those words bring us life in Jesus name amen so last week the message we addressed the question who is Jesus And Robert pointed out about how the focus seems to change in Mark chapter 8 And now as we're moving into Mark chapter 9, the focus changes again. And the focus is, basically, we have to start looking at, what is our focus on? So I brought a little illustration, which can go up on the screen now. It's coming. There it is. So I'm going to ask you, and you don't have to answer out loud. what do you see? You should either see a senior citizen Or a young lady. Okay. You see the senior citizen. You'll see this as the nose, and this is the mouth. If you see the young lady, you'll see this as the nose. Her head turned. This is the hair with the fancy little plume. So your focus determines what you see. And as we start. In Mark chapter 9, I want to read, because it's a short passage, really. Verses 2 through 13 is what we're going to address this morning. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and then led them up to a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then the cloud appeared and enveloped, them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love, listen to him. And suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone th- with them except Jesus. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had been risen from the dead. And they kept themsel- the matter to themselves, discussing, what does rising from the dead meant. And they asked him, why did the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then, it is written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected. But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. So to give you a little background before this amazing experience on the mountain, back in Mark chapter 8, Jesus had fed 4,000 people. This is an additional time. Earlier on, he had fed 5,000 people. And they ended up gathering up seven loaves of fish. And then, of course, the Pharisees, who like to follow Jesus around and harass him, give him this question. They say they want a sign from heaven. Now, seriously? I don't know what it's going to take. But now the focus shifts. Jesus starts talking about suffering and dying and rising from the dead. And as Robert shared last week, Peter didn't like that talk. That didn't correspond with his vision. That wasn't where his focus was as to what the actual glory of Christ was. And so he said, never, Jesus, no way. And Jesus gave him a pretty good rebuke. He said, get behind me, Satan. Satan. You have the things of men in mind, not the things of God. And that's the problem when our focus shifts to what we think God's glory should be. So how do we keep it focused on Jesus and his actual glory? Well, God himself says this. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love." Listen to him. And, of course, listening has to be coupled with actions. James tells us that, James chapter 1, verse 22. It tells us, do not be deceived. By merely listening to God's word, do what it says. And that's what God is telling us. If we want to see what the actual glory is, if we want to experience Christ's actual glory, we have to change our focus to what we think it should be what it actually is. So on my was, I just finished my personal devotional. I just finished the book of Leviticus. I'm so glad to be done with Leviticus. It's a... But in this book, in chapter 9, there's a situation where they're describing the, how the glory of God appears. And so Moses talks about all these different things that they're commanded to do so that the glory of the Lord will appear to you. That's in Leviticus 9, chapter 6. So then Aaron has to do all this stuff. He has to do these sacrifices at the altar. He has to first atone for himself. Then he has to go back and atone for the people. He has to sprinkle blood on different things. And he has to take the kidneys out, burn the fat off the kidneys. I mean, it's an exhaustive process. And then they have to slaughter another animal for, for sacrifice and sprinkle the blood on the altar and then cut up the pieces of the animal they had, they had slaughtered. But they're not done yet. Then they have to slaughter a goat. And that is, again, for the people's sin. And they go through all this same procedure again. And then they slaughter an ox as a fellowship offering and go through that same procedure. And then he blesses the people. Then in verse 23, it says this, then after going through all this, the glory of the Lord appeared to all the people, and fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed the burnt offering and the fat portions on the altar. And when all the people saw They shouted for joy and fell down and worshipped. So if you remember the story of Elijah on the mountain, sort of little rabbit, that's when fire came down and consumed the altar when there was the battle between the prophets of Baal and Elijah, the true prophet of God. Well, that wasn't the first time. Fire came out here and consumed. But the glory of God was serious business in Leviticus because two of Aaron's sons... Nabadad, if I'm pronouncing that correct, or Ebu. They offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to what he commanded. This is in Leviticus chapter 10. And what happens? The fire of the Lord comes out and consumes them. So God's glory is not a mysterious thing. But fortunately, the vision of God's glory with Christ's coming has changed. So unlike getting a sharp rebuke like Peter, these two young men who were to be priests for God lost their lives by not listening to God. But Romans 1 talks about the glory of God as well. In verses 20 through 25, it talks about how we have no excuse because from the beginning of creation... God's qualities and his eternal power and his divine nature are clearly seen in everything that's created in the world. So man is without excuse. But what is the result of our humanity, of my self centeredness and yours? They knew God, but they neither glorified him nor gave thanks. And they exchanged the glory of God for things that they created. And they gave away through their own free choice the glory of God. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served things and ideas they created rather than the creator of all things. Well, we don't have that issue now. Well, it's interesting in another devotional that I read by Nikki Gumbell. He talked about a survey of millennials. And in this survey, 50% of the millennial, millennials can't even say it. That's because I'm not a millennial. I'm a baby boomer. Their major goal in life was to become famous. And then he has a quote in there from Madonna. Now I realize that's old school. It's now Some of you may not know who Madonna is. I had a bunch of young people in the car once, and they're playing this game where you have to guess something, they put the phone up on their head. And the thing they had to guess was Madonna. And the person explained, oh, she's some old singer that, you know, used to. (laughs) That's how he's describing Madonna. So I realize this is an old quote. But her quote is, and she was very famous at one time, probably one of the most famous women on the planet. But her quote is, I won't be happy until I'm as famous as God. So, yeah, we still have a problem with figuring out what the actual glory of Christ is. Again, Nicky Gumball, he talks about the glory. As used in the Bible, denotes the manifestation of God's presence. And then he goes on to say, perhaps it's not surprising that as society moves away from worshiping the glory of God, it has turned to the worship of the glory of celebrities and fame. But we're called to worship God and reflect his glory. He goes on to say, the word used for transfigured is the same word that is translated transformed. So when the Apostle Paul writes, and we are all with unveiled faces contemplating the Lord's glory, we are to be transformed to his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord who is spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18. He's talking about the glory involves us being transformed. But that's a problem. And I'm going to read from 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 12, to kind of explain the problem a little bit. And that's on page 1647, if you're interested in looking at that in your pew Bible. Starting at verse... 4. The God of this age, of course referring to Satan, has blinded the minds of unbelievers, so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is in the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord, and ourselves as your servant, for God's sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of the darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of knowledge of the glory of God, in the face of Christ. But here's the problem. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Even though we're jars of clay. We have to look at just as Peter, James, and John had to look at. What does that really mean, to experience the glory of God and to be in God's presence? The world's glory, celebrity status, luxury, and a wealthy lifestyle is not it. And one of my favorite books from Timothy Keller, it's not as well known as some of the others he wrote, it's called King's Cross. He says this about God's glory. And the life of Jesus' suffering and glory are linked. Jesus' glory was of a different kind to that which the world expects then and now. In the first half of Mark, he called people to follow him. But now he's painting a more vivid picture of what that following entails. As he takes up a cross, we must do the same. As the cross and the glory are linked in his life, so the cross and the glory will be linked in our lives. That is the theme that is introduced to us in the second half of Mark. Then he goes on to explain how centuries prior to this event on this mountain where James, Peter, and John were able to see Christ speaking with Moses and Elijah, God came down to Mount Sinai in a cloud and God's voice spoke to Moses out of that cloud and most wanted, Moses wanted to see God's glory but God's glory was so powerful that that wasn't going to be possible but he arranged for him to see the back of him and even though he didn't get to see God's entire glory Moses' face would be shining with the reflection of God now this is what Timothy Keller writes, now centuries later, we're on top of another mountain. And there's glory again. The dazzling brightness makes Jesus' clothes whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there, on the mountain, a voice out of a cloud. And even Moses makes an appearance. Is this Mount Sinai all over again? No, because there's a head snapping twist here. Moses had reflected the glory of God as the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus produces the unsurpassable glory of God. It emanates from him. Jesus does not point to the glory of God as Elijah, Moses, and every other prophet has done. Jesus is the glory of God in human form. The author of Hebrew puts it this way. The Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Hebrews 1.3. But again, we always like to gloss over certain things, and we forget about how suffering is linked to being part of God's plan and being in his presence. Because now if we move to the Garden of Eden, Garden of Eden, I said that in Sunday school, Garden of Gethsemane, that other garden, the same three people who saw Jesus on that mountain, James, Peter, and John, were there when Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the depths of his human sorrow. And he's praying to his father. He's praying if there's another alternative, he'd like to have another alternative. But nevertheless, he's willing to do the father's will, whatever the cost. Now going back to the Garden of Eden. Contrast there. There, Adam and Eve and us say, not your way, Lord, but mine. But to reflect and be in God's presence, we have to adopt that suffering of Jesus and say, not my way, but yours. That was Jesus's prayer. And how do we do that? God himself told us, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And James points out to us, and do what he says. Focusing on Christ's glory and reflecting that in our lives, it's a choice we make, choice by choice. And we can't do that in our own power because we have that treasure in jars of clay. We need the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us. We need to listen to Christ and understand that suffering is linked to his glory. Just like for us, suffering is going to be linked to us reflecting his glory. Then we can do what we're challenged to do in Philippians 1:27. Whatever happens, whether we like it or not, whatever is a pretty all-encompassing term. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that's a choice we have to make day by day, moment by moment, if we want to truly experience God's glory and reflect that glory to those around us if you will join me in prayer father we thank you for sharing our glory your glory not our glory and lord help us to embrace that so that we can reflect it so they won't chase after other things to try to conjure up the world's glory Help us, Lord, to humbly listen to your son and then do what he says. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a new song I wanted to share with you guys today that I learned at Summit. It was a conference I went to, and this week's just been a week of a lot of emotions, a lot of confusion, a lot of shock, a lot of grief, and this is the best song that I have found that has spoken to my heart that I also hope speaks to your heart about what God's kingdom is, because it's confusing where we're sitting on, Lord, what are you doing? I know that's been a question of mine. And what's going on? What are you doing? So if you'll stand, this is just kind of a song to reflect on what is...